Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. Uh, and one of these days, I'm going to tell you guys where I sort of instinctively pulled the different elements of my introductions and outros from, because they're all pulled from other podcasts that I listen to. They're basically just carbon copied and slapped over here, and someday I'll tell you which ones they are. Sam might know oh, some I of know. them. I well, know a few of them. Yeah. You know some of them, but you don't know all of them. Almost, no. almost sure you don't know all of them. And I um, know zero of them, because I think this is the only podcast I actually listen to. <laughs> way, hey. to way to keep an open mind. Uh, but speaking of keeping an open mind, Sam, what are you drinking right now? Oh, well, two notes. First of all, I'm drinking some nice um, Keurig coffee again. Just just coffee. Okay. It's like Very 6 nice. p.m. Um, but I was going to note that, Stephen, this is the only podcast he listens to. And I think for me, this is the only podcast I don't listen to. So. <laughs> uh, there we go. It balances out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen, what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking some sparkling ice water. Uh, it is black cherry, naturally flavored. I doubt that very much. Sparkling water. With okay. antioxidants and vitamins and zero sugar. So uh, it's enough to make me fool myself that this is good liquid that I'm ingesting. You know, I've been seeing all these advertisements on my Facebook about um, it's it's just another like seltzer with alcohol content. And it's like this, but this one has antioxidants. And it's like we, you know, like we put in some random vitamin B and vitamin C powder. Look at that. It's just like, come on. Like, that doesn't make this healthy. Stop trying. To, like, can we just stop pretending? Uh, well, I'm not pretending because I'm just having some uh, some lovely port, some lovely Ooh. tawny port. It it Ooh. reminds me of of Oxford and when I was young and 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 unwise. Um, I'm all better now, but uh, mm. it's like cycling up that hill. Drunk on port. Oh yes, of course. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good times. Uh, but speaking of good times, uh, Stephen, I believe you have dutifully, uh, if painfully, summarized the first sixteen pages of the mountain we are calling Chapter Two. Indeed, I have, and who boy, it is. Uh, he packs. He packs a lot into this. Um, so. Uh, I even went a little above and beyond and uh, went from page 30 to 50, and the result was almost 2,000 words of uh, distillation. So let's let's dive right into this. Uh, so McGillchrist, he opens up with describing his project for this chapter, uh, the goal of covering neurological and neurophysical evidence that the two hemispheres are indeed different in significant ways. He does caveat, quote, I would also caution against national natural tendency of the analytic approach, having unimpeachably distinguished parts, to see the parts rather than the systemic whole to which they belong as of primary, primary significance, end quote. Uh, the theme of seeing the whole instead of just the parts, if my friend who read this is to be believed, will surface again repeatedly. Uh, there aren't particular bits of the brain that are solely responsible for this or that function, especially intrahemisphere, and he, he also uh, caveats that. Uh, he notes that on the whole, the right side of the brain is typically lar larger as well as heavier, saying that this is common amongst most social mammals. Uh, the right side also has more wh white matter, which facilitates communication across hemispheres, emphasizing the right side attention to the big picture, whereas the left side prioritizes intra-hemisphere uh, communication. Uh, the neurochemistry of the two hemispheres are also significantly difficult. They are different. The right side is more sensitive to noradrenaline, the left to dopamine. He concludes that this strongly implies a functional difference. That it is not the what that each hemisphere does, but the how of what it does. Uh, I'll note here that this was all within the first two pages. The dude cramps so much material in uh, a dense space. 
Uh, he goes on to describe the various methods in which neuroscientists can analyze brain activity, noting the various strengths and weaknesses of each techniques, uh, each technique, fMRIs, EEGs, SPECTs, PETs, PETs, and all sorts of science sounding acronyms that I could repeat his description of them, but I don't want to. Um, triggering different hemispheres and subregions usually presents a challenge. Uh, one common approach is to use individuals who have recently suffered lesions of some kind, usually due to a stroke. One interesting thing he said was that individuals who were born with lesions, or lesions really aren't helpful in this due to the fact that the brain's plasticity is exceptionally high during childhood, and so the brain has the opportunity to, opportunity to reorganize itself. Uh, people who have had callosotomies, uh, in which the two hemispheres have been severed from each other in order to prevent seizures, a technique that has mostly disappeared due to less invasive pharmacological approaches has being developed, um, also uh, provided a unique study. He notes that this is not an exact science. Uh, not only are all the analysis techniques flawed in some way, EEGs are instantaneous but don't get very precise localization, fMRIs are a lot better at localization but have a time spread of three to five seconds, um, but the subjects are, are, are varied as well. Uh, that This just in, everyone is different and people respond differently by gender, race, age, handedness, and other factors. So the challenge that uh, these neuroscientists are, are approaching is a stiff one. Uh, and with that, he dives into the many, many differences between hemispheres. His first subject is attention, uh, that which brings into being something that exists outside of ourselves. Uh, he goes on a bit of a tangent, discussing how the right side of the brain is the open one, the one that will encounter all things as new that present themselves to us, whereas the left side is the one that represents represents uh, them in a more conceptual way. This is important. It would be difficult to live in a world in which each cup is a completely different concept. In fact, that would render the symbol cup completely meaningless. We'll see if he ties this phenomenon of language uh, as abstraction later. Uh, our ability to use things, therefore, requires a mode that is distinctly left brain. Quote, much of our capacity to use the world depends not on an attempt to open ourselves up as much as possible to apprehend whatever it is that exists a part of ourselves, but instead on apprehending whatever I have brought into being for myself, my representation of it. This is the remit of the left hemisphere, and it would appear to require a selective, highly focused attention, end quote. It is the demand of the right hemisphere to be open to the world, to be on the lookout. Quote, it has to be open to whatever it is that exists apart from ourselves, as much as possible, without preconceptions, not just focusing on what it already knows or is interested in, end quote. Neuroscientists have distinguished five types of attention, vigilance, sustained attention, alertness, focused attention, and divided attention. Uh, though frustratingly, he doesn't really give any definitions for these, um, he branches them into two categories, uh, intensity, which, which is vigilance, sustained attention, and alertness and selectivity, which consists of focused and divided attention. Uh, studies have shown that the right brain is distinctly dominant in the first category, intensity, while the left brain is dominant in focused attention, uh, with both being roughly the same in divided attention, though McGilchrist does say that there's some evidence that implies that the right may have a slight edge on this. Damage to the right side of the brain yields attention lapses and struggles to stay vigilant, uh, but leaves focused attention intact. Damage to the left side of the brain does the opposite. It leaves one struggling to focus, but can remain on the whole alert. Patients with right, or quote, patients with right hemisphere lesion, therefore relying on their intact left hemisphere, start with the pieces and put them together to get the overall picture, whereas those with a left hemisphere lesion, relying on the right hemisphere, prefer a global approach. Patients with right hemisphere damage don't seem able to adjust the breadth of the spotlight of their attention. They suffer an, ex an excessive and more or less permanent narrowing of their attentional window. End quote. 
Moving right along, he briefly touches on how, unsurprisingly, the right side of the brain is much better at encountering the new. We need our right side to deal with it, doing a new task or learning a new concept. Once the skill or concept has become familiar, it shifts over to the left side's domain. This has results in problem solving. Quote, the right hemisphere is, in other words, more capable of a frame shift. And not surprisingly, the right frontal lobe is especially important for flexibility of thought, with damage in that area leading to perseveration, the pathological inability to respond flexibly to changing situations, end quote. The right side sees a whole set of tools for the job and chooses the proper one. The left side is a hammer into it, everything is nailed. The right side is also better at seeing discrepancies in any schema. The left side is much more blind to this. Uh, this also affects language associations. The left hemisphere, upon hearing a word, will only think of words with highly associated meanings. The right will consider a much broader range of words. Quote, the left hemisphere operates focally, suppressing meanings that are not currently relevant. By contrast, the right hemisphere processes information in a non-focal manner, with widespread activation of related meanings. End quote. This yields an amusing situation. The right side being much more flexible uh, extends on the meta level. It can use the left hemisphere's preferred style, but the left cannot use the right's. With a broader set of associations, it has more options, and the left will actively suppress these options. Uh, one thing that stood out was McGillchrist bringing up this as a possible expl explanation of the tip of the tongue phenomenon. The more you focus on what you're trying to say, the more concentrated, the more specialized, the more left-brained, you end up suppressing your right brain, which has more associations at its disposal. The moment you relax is the moment you remember. It's notable that creativity can flourish after the left hemisphere suffers a stroke or similar injury, though McGillchrist is quick to point out that both are needed and that creativity is actually damaged after a calisotomy, which isn't surprising. Creativity requires both the union and the distinction of things. But the left hemisphere's habit of suppressing right hemisphere's options, are it, that, that is a very noteworthy phenomenon. Uh, the left hemisphere is more closely interconnected within itself, as well as within the regions of itself, than the right side, which has a structure that encourages communication across regions. This yields a higher ability to, quote, bring together in consciousness different elements, including information from the ears, eyes, and other sensory organs, and from memory, so as to generate the richly complex but coherent world we experience, end quote. It's also noteworthy that the noradrenaline, nor I really need to stay away from scientific words, uh, that the noradrenergic, that's about the best I'm going to get, uh, neurons, that is the neurons that release noradrenaline when stimulated uh, in the right hemisphere do not fatigue. That is, they do not cease to respond when continuously stimulated, which means their attention can carry on for long stretches at a time. The right hemisphere can therefore keep more information held together for longer as its working memory is more robust. Uh, it's definitely good that uh, the right side of the brain, the one that presents the world to us, is in charge. It's global, global approach. The way it presents the thing as a whole before passing it to the left side to be broken down into its constituent parts, uh, which is why if we see a group of letters or numbers arranged into a shape, we see the shape first and then the individual pieces, uh, is what directs the left to do what it does best. And when this direction is broken, broken some interesting results can come about. Uh, one is known as hemi-neglect which follows after a right hemisphere stroke, in which the patient can completely lose awareness of the left half of his or her field of vision. Uh, remember that the left hemisphere is in charge of the right side of the body, including the eye. Quote, so extreme can this phenomenon be that the sufferer may fail to acknowledge the existence of anyone standing to his left, the left, the left half of the face of a clock, or the left page of a newspaper or book, and will even neglect to shave, wash, or dress the left half of the body, sometimes going so far as to deny that it exists at all. End quote. Uh, note that this doesn't happen 
when the left side of the brain is damaged, or at least not as extreme, though here McGillchrist is a little bit unclear. Um, another phenomenon is stickiness, in which patients who have damaged the right side of the brain will find their gaze inexorably drawn to the right, having difficulty disengaging with objects uh, in the right field of vision. McGillchrist citing an example of a patient who would be walking by a door, notice on their right, on their right field of vision a door hinge and be unable to stop looking at it, primarily due to the fact that the left side of the brain is stimulated, stimulated by familiarity. So the familiarity of an object causes it to attend all the more. The implications of this on hemi neglect is that the issue is not so much a matter of the left disregarding the left side of the field of vision, but getting so caught up in the right that it can't let go and attend to other things. Unsurprisingly, the left side specializes in grasping the parts of things, whereas the right grasps the whole. Uh, patients with damage to the right hemisphere, when asked to assemble an elephant model, could not do so uh, due to their being not able to grasp the whole out of the parts. Uh, when asked to draw a man, they uh, drew a circle with three lines coming out of the bottom. Uh, a house was a V with some scribbles beneath it, or an upside down V, rather. Uh, and a bicycle was three circles connected by some lines. On the other hand, patients with right brain damage are still good at drawing things, but their drawings just lack detail. So all of that uh, was 20 pages, and we still have another 45 to go. Uh, I think Brevin and Sam have uh, some comments on the next 20 pages or so? Yeah, I, I was just going to, I mean, Stephen has a nicely written out summary, um, and we'll continually reference these throughout our discussion on the book. But I was, we, Brevin and I was going to thumb through and kind of point out the key points from these next kind of the next most of the chapter. Moving out of the hemi-neglect uh, bit, he talks about the difference between con context and abstraction and how the right brain is extremely necessary for context and establishing the context of um, whatever you're seeing or experiencing, while the left hemisphere is fairly abstract. Um, this is one of the rare moments in this chapter where he talks about the benefits of the left hemisphere. I kind of felt like he got, he gave that a he was pretty down on that for most of the chapter. But here he talks about how the left hemisphere is actually critical in disciplines such as philosophy, where you have to think logically through the through the issue and logically through the argument outside of the of the context and actually bringing context into it and letting your past biases influence your logical argument could be um, problematic or detrimental. Um, from there, he moves into the distinction between individuals and categories where the right hemisphere is primarily responsible for identifying individuals and the left hemisphere for identifying broad categories. Both of these are useful and necessary. So with the right hemisphere, you see a person and you know that person is a specific person, but the left hemisphere fits them into the broader category of people. And it allows you to make sense of a group of people, um, many of whom you may not know. Left, the left hemisphere can still give you rules to govern those, that, that group. Moving out of this, or, or one, one bit in this actually section that I found extremely interesting was how he gives one example of a person who has a, a schizophrenic person whose right hemisphere was extremely damaged. And he asked the person what he did that day. And the person replied, I moved some things to the right. It was a perfect, he, he was amused by that because it was a perfect description of exactly what he did to these objects without any kind of context for that. It was just the action that he did. And even the objects did not have identities in of themselves. It was just, they were moved. He then talks about how the right hemisphere points out, I believe the differences between objects while the left hemisphere pulls those together. 
Then talking about persons and living things versus impersonal things and non-living, the right hemisphere is critical for us giving living things some kind of special value value over non-living things. And so as we go through the world, we're going to encounter things that have their own categories, but the right hemisphere adds in the necessary context to acknowledge those things as living versus the left hemisphere doesn't appear to be capable of that. It just puts them into a category or um, and analyzes that specific thing, whether or not it's living, they use it as the same. This moves directly into his discussion on empathy, where obviously if the right hemisphere is what allows you to identify something as living, it also allows you to empathize with that, with that thing. It gives us the emotional content to be able to map yourself onto another person's mind and process the emotions as they're feeling them. He then talks about mirror neurons, which are the neurons that allow you to um, replicate another person's mental state in your own brain um, in order to reckon with it, in order to relate to it. And these are a little bit more complicated. I, I was a little bit confused here, honestly, as he was talking about how these are actually present in both hemispheres, but they serve slightly different purposes and primarily are activated in the right hemisphere is what it sounded like. But again, this is getting, he's getting deep into the weeds here with not only hemisphere differences, but also front and back differences. He even talks a little bit about emotional um, processing ability. Again, the right hemisphere is what identifies emotional expression. It's able to both process your own emotions, but also discern other people's emotions. And that moves him directly into this conversation on faces. Let's see here. The, the, the right hemisphere is what's able to discern what somebody's facial expression is saying. And out of your left eye, or if you're somebody with a right hemisphere lesion, you, you tend to focus on the mouth of the person, which is very um, kind of blunt emotions are shown in the mouth, but really most emotions are shown in the eyes. And people with left hemisphere or right hemisphere lesions will actually ask, what's with all this eye business with the eyes? I don't understand what people are saying about seeing emotions in the eyes. I don't see those emotions. And then right on page 60, he talks about um, this bit on prosopagnosia, which is something I wanted to, to um, at least be talking about, uh, partially because this is a condition that, that I actually have a mild form of. And it was, it was interesting to hear him talk about that because it was so um, relatable. So prosopagnosia is face blindness, which is where a person can not necessarily assemble the pieces of the face and be able to identify somebody's face as connecting to that person. And given all of his context here about how the right hemisphere is important for adding the context and amalgamating that with the thing that you're experiencing, this makes perfect sense. And so actually, how much do you guys want me to talk about face blindness? Because I don't really want to just like rant about it pointlessly. Um, I think it's, it's good maybe after the summary. Okay, great. Yeah, so maybe we'll, I'll, maybe we could just put this later or something. But that's basically the end of the summary. As he talks about face blindness, it's, a, it's also connected to all this context stuff in the right hemisphere. All right. Uh, the next 10 pages just covers sort of runs through most of the rest of our human experience from uh, emotional expression to our mental states with depression, how we identify with our bodies, and finally the meaning to our words themselves. Um, and unsurprisingly, there are big differences between the right and the left brain uh, in each of these categories. So in terms of expressing emotions, the right side of the brain seems to be involved with more or less all emotions, uh, expressing it in your face, in your body, 
etc with the exception of anger which seems to be somewhat more of the uh, anger and aggression seem to be more the realm of the left half of the brain so for example uh children who suffer from autism will have the will have difficulty with empathy so that they'll have difficulty reading social cues uh facial expressions um and also expressing it themselves they won't be able to express meaning and emotion quite often uh with their with their voices and this is due to uh essentially the the right brain the right side of the brain being impaired in some way the right hemisphere also is to do with spontaneous facial expressions like smiling and laughter and as a reminder so because of the way uh the sort of cross control the right hemisphere of the brain controlling the left side of the face and the left hemisphere controlling the right side of the face means some interesting things for cross-cultural communication more complex emotions are better expressed and better read by the left side of the face or the right side of the brain whereas in cross-cultural situations where there's less information about the other person it's in fact the left side of the brain and the right side of the face that's better for communicating emotions uh, simply because you know you don't need as much information it's more universal we also communicate with our children with the left side of the face the right hemisphere of the brain uh in in humans virtually all and also apes and and i tested this on my wife i handed her a stuffed animal and asked her to cradle it like a baby and you cradle it with the head on the left side near the left half of your face where your emotions are most readily uh revealed to the child communicated to the child and this is a universal bias to cradle infants to that side and i mean and i'll also point out like i can speak for myself the left side of my face is more flexible i can raise my eyebrow on the left side far better than i can on the right side uh so that's uh fun baby cradling thing to be the most interesting fact in this entire chapter because i agree definitely every yeah, time i tell the baby yeah <laughs> yeah if you just instinctively do it it will go to the left and it's like what the hell how how is that possible <laughs> that is truly fascinating yep um so then moving on to the next section it's talking about uh differences in emotional uh affinity um sort of and he spends some time going through like you know sometimes the the left half of the brain is associated with a positive emotion and the right side is negative or vice versa and he says that this isn't this is not a helpful or accurate way to do this a lot of what he talks about in the in these next couple sections is just sort of like here's stereotype it's wrong here's a more nuanced view the short version of it as far as i can tell is that the uh the right half of the brain is more associated with feelings that have to do with bonding fellow feeling and uh, empathy both the positive and negative sides of that where the left half has more to do with a uh, sort of uh, sense of senses of individual self belief and rivalry both positive and negative there's also some interesting stuff about color where there seems to be a slight bias on the right side of the brain uh, in favor of the color green and uh the left side for the color red um he doesn't necessarily go anywhere directly with that except for to link it through the medieval idea of melancholy and black bile where the different uh what the, the left side of the body where the um uh the spleen that generated black bile and melancholy resided 
would be to associate the right half of the brain with melancholy, which he says is more or less accurate. Uh, here, he goes a little bit into talking about depressive states in the brain. Here, the front-back dynamic also comes into effect. Uh, it's a little, it's kind of a mouthful to say, uh, but I, I believe it's more or less this. Eh, you know what, I, I'm just going to skip that because I'm not confident that I can say it right. Uh, so moving on to the question of something like reason versus rationality. And he says, once again, there's been an assumption throughout history that with the left brain's dominance over spoken language, that that was the place where reason rationality was located. Uh, but that's a mistake. It's, as always, a question not of what, but in what way. Uh, the left side of the brain is more uh, acute with linear sequential argumentation, um, whereas more deductive reasoning or um, broad-ranging mathematical thoughts have to do more with the right side of the brain. Um, and this also ties back to what Stephen was talking about with the tip of the tongue phenomenon, is that our processing often can work better if we're not aware of it. Unless we know the structure beforehand, the left side can actually impede the background processing and building of patterns, sort of the eureka aha moments, uh, by attempting to impose a structure on something that's not actually there. It, it, it imposes a superficial structure on it, uh, which is uh, which is where he implies perhaps the tip of the tongue phenomenon uh, comes from. He also notes that addition and, subtract and subtraction activate the right uh, lobe, whereas multiplication activates the our verbal remembrance of the times table and uh, is in the left hemisphere, which is which I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, then he also talks about how the two hemispheres mediate our experiences of our physical bodies. To sum it up uh, somewhat inelegantly, the left brain uh, only has an image of the right half of the body that it primarily uh, works with, whereas the right half of the brain uh, has an image of the whole body. So uh, damage to the right half of the brain is uh, much worse in terms of you know feeling embodied than damage to the left half. Because if you get damage to the right half, then this is where or a, a lot of phenomenons um, dealing with body dysmorphia and like saying, you know, this hand isn't mine or thinking that the hand belongs to someone else or forgetting that you uh, own it or various other uh, maladies of, of that sort simply because the left half of the brain just doesn't have a concept of the left half of the body um, when the, the right uh, hemisphere is damaged. And he goes into a lot of detail here, but that's more or less the, uh, the nuts and bolts of it. Um, he also points out that the, the right half of the brain tends to be the part that is that experiences the world as being in a body, whereas the left half experiences bodies as somewhat detached. So when the when you have a lesion or some other kind of damage to the right hemisphere, and then the left hemisphere is the only one you know working at full potential, that's where you can get some interesting cases where people tend to become detached from their bodies and also then uh, indulge in things like massive overeating or he talks about sexual urges um, because the person no longer feels in their body, so the body just kind of or you know is is allowed to to do its own thing. Uh, the last part is he talks about meaning uh, and the two hemispheres uh, and the implicit. And we're going to get more into this, I think, next week when we do a more focus on the last half of this or the last uh, couple pages of this chapter, I guess the last 20 pages, if we're honest. And the following chapter, hopefully. 
as we've noted previously, the left part of the brain deals with more with representation and a system of symbols rather than the actual content of them. Uh, the left hemisphere, uh, uh, to quote, the left hemisphere may have a lot to do with language, but the right hemisphere plays a vital part in language too. It uses language not in order to manipulate ideas or things, but to understand what others mean. This silent hemisphere recognizes words, has a vocabulary, and even some aspects of syntax. In fact, not just language reception, but expression too is highly right hemispheric dependent. The verbal expression problems of the right hemisphere damaged patients can be severe, and it has been suggested that they are almost as severe as those of left hemisphere damaged patients. Finally, he suggests that uh, a right hemisphere stroke, though it doesn't stop your speech directly, can be worse than having a left hemisphere stroke and losing the ability to speak and formulate words because the meaning that we communicate to each other is more than just the sounds that we make themselves. It's the, it's the implicit and content of them that's important, and it's the right side of the brain that more or less holds that content. Um, and then there's more to the chapter, but we shall get to that in the future. Uh, yeah, so how do you guys think? How did, how did we do with our, with our summarizing of this? Because like, we, we, we all left a lot out. There's a lot of stuff here. We we are horribly underqualified. That is the good truth right there. But honestly, like it it does seem like a, a reasonable distillation. I mean, the whole thing could be distilled into the right brain presents and or presents or I wouldn't say necessarily right brain presents things. It's more of things present themselves, and the right brain is what receives them, and then the left side of the brain represents them. Um, which I, I I find that. I find that kind of dynamic between presenting and representing fascinating. It is such a kind of a new paradigm to consider with right and left brain um, uh, lateralization that, you know, for so long, I've always, I've always been kind of told the more pseudoscientific stuff of, you know, like, yo, your left brain is super logical, your right brain is super emotional or, or whatever. And this idea of they are different, but not in that way, but rather in more conceptual or, and more of, well, the how instead of the what. Yeah, I mean, he has a really nice, um, I don't know, where, where I got it was on page 46, where he's got this little thing where he just says, this is the instance of the right, and then an arrow left, arrow right. And it's just, that's the pattern, is that the right brain receives it, it represents it to the left, the left, you know, it, give, it gives the piece that it should give to the left, the left focuses on that piece, and then passes an analysis back to the right that we experience. And the master and his emissary. The master and his emissary. Yeah. So I'm wondering what's going to happen. I mean, sorry, go ahead, Stephen. Oh, it really is a uh, just a situation in which you have the specialist and you have the generalist. And it seems that the right side is the generalist who is like has a general idea of what's going on and what is needed, whereas the special and, and the specialist is really good at focusing in on these really tiny tasks or these really tiny concepts and then passing it back, but or in passing it back to the generalist who knows how to fit them into the overall whole. And then we're going to get into well, what happens when that specialist thinks that it can be the generalist? Uh, because the generalist is a lot more uh, well, it's silent and it is easier to be uh, to be silenced, or I suppose, uh, 
which it, it is interesting. He's already hinting at it with a few instances of the left side of the brain kind of dominating the, the right side of the brain. Uh, the tip of the tongue being a perfect example where the left side is shutting down the right side's more general um, a, a array of uh, familiar words. The left is only concerned with with words that have high familiarity, not just low familiarity. So, I'm I'm really looking forward to what uh, to what he's going to do with that. I mean, he's almost got this set up like a thriller. I mean, we're getting all this backstory of the left and right brain and the way that they operate, but it's constantly under the current that, like, you know, when the left brain takes over, things are not well. I mean, that was most jarring in the in the bits. Um, where they were talking about the people looking at their hand and saying, this is an alien hand. This is an evil man. There's an evil man in bed with me and he has that hand. And like, that's, that's disturbing. Um, and I guess if that's what happens when the left brain is entirely in charge or the right brain brain is not functioning properly, I guess I'm concerned what will happen or what might happen if society were to or had decided to shift to the specials. Yeah. I think one thing almost that I think <laughs> that he uh, let me pause. Uh, it's it's pretty obvious from how a lot of stuff is phrased in this is just maybe, you know, I don't engage with the right, you know, bad online uh, or in-person psychology magazines that I would have to engage with to understand why he thinks that everyone just hates the right side of the brain. But that really is seems to be the assumption that he's coming from is that the left brain's dominance on spoken language and the demonstrated thing of that has just made people think that the right side of the brain is pointless. So his project seems to be actually the right brain is hyper important, which does seem to, you know, it, it makes the left brain honestly look bad in a lot of the ways that he talks about it. Um, just because it's relevant at the end of this chapter, he actually, uh, you know, sort of clarifies himself and and, and says, uh, just to be clear, I'm not saying that society would be better if everyone had a stroke on the left half of their brain. But um, so so he yes, so that that is sort of the the context of this is is he's fighting with an enemy that has made the left half of the brain implicitly dominant, um, and he's trying to return the the balance to the two sides. I suppose. That makes more sense. And that's, I guess, yeah, I, I, we just, I, I didn't have that context reading this. And so I was kind of wondering why he's so hard on the left side of the brain. <laughs> yeah. But. I mean, I have occasionally heard, not necessarily in so many words, but kind of people who generally say, or when talking about left brain, right brain, especially when it's in the more pseudoscientific uh, ways, there is almost this implicit admiration of the left side for being more logical for being more rational and the right side it's always kind of the patronizing compliments like well the right side is really in tune with its emotions and that's great it uh, has so feelings exactly it it can love but and it can it can have joy is it, it's just it, there's a clear kind of preference for the yeah but the left side can actually get crap done and the right side can't so i mean really you know what good is it um yeah. So I, I think his project is kind of a noteworthy one, especially given that he is going to use the results of this project to launch into a uh, argument that our society would be much better off if we would stop 
preferring the the left side, but he has to he has to show the evidence uh, before because if he's correct and there is kind of this implicit preference for the left side, he needs to bring about a large amount of evidence that says like actually no, this should not be preferred. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh... Uh, facial blindness. Yeah, facial blindness. Yeah, you, uh, Brevin, you can probably insert that bit I said earlier about it in here, right? Yeah. Exactly. No, but his description was was really good, and I think that, at least from a firsthand account, it really does, for me at least, demonstrate the um. I don't know, kind of that right-left brain divide. So, for example, like I took a test on on face blindness, um, online, and it was a test run by. I think some graduate students and it basically showed a series of faces and you had to select whether you'd seen the face or whether it was a new face. And it was 70, 75 faces and some of them would repeat was basically a premise of the test. And I, I took the test and got, I got a 58 out of 75, which is n- not considered for serious prosopagnosia. Um, and then there was a little comment section afterwards. And the comments were hilarious because everybody was there. There were so many people in there who, like me, were thinking that test was was easier than we would have expected it to be. And they were all saying, "Well, no, the context was provided for us. These were the same picture. These people were wearing the same clothes. I was identifying that person based off their acne, or the shirt they were wearing, or the lighting in the picture. And the, where it gets difficult is when you're lacking the context." And when you don't have a set context given to you for which you're expecting to find that person, which is exactly how I experience it as well. Um, And so I guess that shows the value of the right brain in that area, which is being able to process the different contexts that you're in and provide the context where you would see that person in order and, and, and assemble the pieces together. All of that so the left brain can kind of match it to a person i don't know, i just i i think it's a good example of how it works and when one part of that chain is broken the rest of it gets increasingly difficult no that that is a fascinating mm-hmm. exploration uh i haven't read the uh, the section yet um but it is a fascinating exploration into kind of why it works it works that way and i so I, i'm curious i'm not exactly sure how facial blindness uh, works is uh-huh. it like do you recognize people that you've been around for a long time or is it like legitimately you need to kind of identify people by you know the clothes that they're wearing or what have you like if okay. uh, if you have like a family member do you recognize them by their face i can do family members by my faces i can do like ellen by her face i can do like close friends by their face usually anywhere but i'll be out places and like there's been multiple occasions where I've seen somebody who's tall with curly blonde hair and I thought it's Brevin. <laughs> no kidding. Several times. Yeah. And I've been like, wait a second. And honestly turned around to walk up to the person. Um, and it being a good ten or fifteen seconds before being like, wait a second. They're not walking like Brevin. And then being like, Oh wait, no, that's not him. He's not here. Yeah, I mean you're you um I would see people and wouldn't be in class with them. And therefore, they would know my name and I wouldn't know theirs. And we would have, we could have whole conversations. I wouldn't know who they were. 
I mean, if it um, makes you feel like any better, I, I did that all the time and I don't have <laughs> facial blindness as an excuse. That's so fair. Uh, <laughs> That is fair. Yeah. So anyway, I guess all I'm saying is that the way, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what exactly what I'm trying to say, but. Well, you have personal they, experience with the sort of slice and dice nature that our brains are apparently dealing with information. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and so someone would ask me like how I knew them and I'm like, well, you're wearing your glasses or like a specific piece <laughs> that I'd associate with them or, or the hair or a specific item of clothing um, are a lot easier, but apparently the face is more normal, is more standard. So anyway, just interesting. Yeah. Honestly, the, the different parts, a few, a few pieces uh, when I'm reading kind of stuck, stuck out as kind of intensely relatable. And I'm hoping that both hoping and dreading that, uh, that, that keeps up. Um, for example, like the, the left getting caught in its own echo chamber um, that, oh, yeah. that kind of did resonate in a way that I was, I was quite surprised on. So like if, for me, uh, oftentimes I'll like find myself getting obsessed with one hobby or another, which I think we all do, but still there is kind of this weird, the, the left side being stimulated by familiarity and the right side being stimulated by uh, the newness and the fact that I'm actually really reluctant to try new things, but the familiarity, the, the thing, you know, like watching the show that I've watched before, what have you, being the distinct domain of the left side of the brain. I don't know, like it, it did feel kind of weird resonating with certain things. And certainly I didn't mm -hmm. re resonate with it quite as much as you with uh, facial blindness, but, but still it's kind of, uh, it's a strangely personal book for being so scientific. I know. <laughs> There's also the the thing that I'm having to sort of hold myself back on um, at various points is is just that the like there's obviously a huge difference in between knowing sort of what different parts of the brain do like like the bit on like depression and stuff and it's like like the way that the brain works makes it seem like these like these are problems that can be solved in in some ways like oh we know how it works we know that the right half of the brain uh if you you know overstimulate it or whatever then you get it uh then then you get depressed or whatever and so like i don't know the thing that i'm just having to remind myself is that this is a mountain of information that he seems to be or that he is presenting but still so much of it is like yeah like the way that we know this is we saw that there was a little bit more electrical activity on that half of the brain when we did X thing. And we have no idea how or why that actually works. We just kind of think it does. And, and there's, there's still just this absolute, um, I, well, actually what it is, is I'm having to avoid left brain thinking of thinking that this is a machine that once I, you know, understand two things about it, I can take it apart and, and rebuild it again. Hmm. Um, but well said. Any, yeah. Well, I do like his caveat at the very beginning where he says, like, look, these these tools that we have, these tests that we run, the experiments themselves, these are all subject to error. Like, this is not exact. However, we have a, like a whole mountain of evidence that seems to be implying these things. But at the same time, it, like, it's not as simple as I may make it out to be. Um, he is speaking to primarily non-experts. And so I think he is kind of just having to say, I'm going to add this one caveat and then I'm just going to kind of pretend afterwards that all of this is really straightforward. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, 
it is tempting to read this and think, okay, not only is everything kind of definitively solved, but now we can go ahead and rebuild everything. Uh, we can now view this as an engine to take apart and put back together. So yeah, well said. Yeah. Well, uh, if if we don't have any more hot takes, um, I mean, my my hottest take we already got to, which is just that the whole baby cradling thing is like utterly insane to me. That's, yes, that, that's incredible. Yeah, that really was. <clears throat> People getting stuck. That that was also like honestly that 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 strikes me as just like kind of terrifying. Like imagine walking by a door and then seeing I don't know a familiar picture or something like that and not being able to leave because your left side of the brain is just really a fan of this picture and just wants to keep looking at it. Like, how crazy is that? And looking at it longer makes your left brain want to look at it more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like that's also just like you get stuck in this weird feedback loop that is in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, um, I want to like walk around wearing a helmet on the left they're the right half of my brain <laughs> after this, after reading this chapter. Absolutely. I have, I have definitively uh, developed a fear of having a stroke now. Yes. Or at least no, a stroke yeah. on, on your right side. Yeah. Yes. Okay. The left side can go, but the right side needs to stay. Yes. That's yeah. That's... I don't want no alien hands or anything. For real. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, all right. Yeah. Well, a second ago, Sam, you were talking about like, feedback loops and stuff but uh, uh so so speaking of feedback loops uh let's talk about bureaucracy uh sam mm. i believe you have our little non-article for for the day this is a uh, uh what, what would we call it um puzzle a, a puzzle excerpt maybe yeah um and and the best part about this is like you know you have to wait till next week to get the answers because I we don't know we don't know we can theorize but we don't know um, Actually, okay. So, 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 so we're just gonna do like probably. Well, we can run through them all fast. Um, fast, and, yes. And, and then, listeners, your job is to go to our SoundCloud and type what you think your answers are in the comments, and uh, we'll see if anyone has the best, uh, the best answer besides ours. Great. We should also put yeah, on so. the Facebook page. Uh, so, like, leave your answers there as well. Yes, if we're be good. If we're not too lazy to do that, but yes, no, um, that's a good point. Yep. Uh, all right, yeah. Sam, take us away. So this is so um, this is for one of my my final classes of undergrad. We're reading um, James Q. Wilson's Bureaucracy um, for Public Policy and Administration, and it's an interesting book. I'm just a little bit a couple chapters into it, but it's it's basically about like the handbook for what does it take to build a successful agency? What is What are the tools? And it's basically all through case studies and analyzing specific instances of what went well and what didn't. And his whole theory, um, Wilson's entire theory, is that the organization makes a far bigger difference than either the leaders on top or the incentives or even the resources given to that agency. It's all about the organization being suited to fit its role. And so initially in the book, he, he, his three big cases are the, the army of the, of the Nazi, of Nazi Germany and how they were organized um, so well, despite the odds to be able to conquer. Um, Texas prisons, which were organized incredibly well to serve their inmates and schools in um, the center of Atlanta and how the specific organizations of those are all totally different 
but they were suited to the population they were serving and they were able to be effective and create, um, I wouldn't say good change, especially with the Nazi, with the, the army of Nazi Germany, but I would say effective change. They anyway, were uh, tools suited to their purposes. Tools suited to their purposes. There you go. Um, and so his whole, his whole thing is basically look at the bureaucracy from the bottom up. And at the end of the introduction, he gives a few different puzzles that he's going to explain throughout the book. And I thought these were interesting and I thought we should talk about them. Um, so I'm just going to read these through one at a time and then we can chat about kind of what we think the option is. And then next week we'll have hopefully some answers. So what I'm going to say is uh, after you read mm -hmm. each one, we each give like a one sentence confident yeah. answer and then we move Great. On. Okay. Number one. When the Tennessee Valley Authority was created in the 1930s, it was attacked by conservatives because it was threatened. It was it threatened the well-being of private electric utilities. Within a few decades, it was being criticized by liberals because it had behaved just like a private utility. Why? It was politically expedient to do so. Uh, it adapted to uh, the only way for it to survive financially was to become exactly like a private utility. That's my answer, too, is that I think it became more like the private electric companies that conservatives were defending. Um, two, when Robert S. McNamara was Secretary of Defense in the late 60s, he raised the military budget, but was disliked by the military brass. When Melvin Laird was Secretary of Defense in the 1970s, he cut the military budget, but was liked by the brass. Why? Uh, my answer is because McNamara raised the funding, but also raised oversight and his uh, meddling with the uh, brass's affairs. I think it's more of a matter of allocation. So yes, budget went down, but he allocated it where it needed to be, and therefore he was liked more. Yeah, I think it's. I'm probably gonna say something similar to those. Is that I think that Laird probably cut out the parts that were unnecessary and and streamlined it so that they could get their job done better. And that also made it more effective. Um, three, for years, the State Department hired Soviet citizens, many, if not all of whom, were KGB agents to be cooks, chauffeurs, and repairmen in the American embassy in Moscow. When it was suggested that they re that replace the KGB agents with American citizens, the State Department resisted. Why? Uh, better the enemy that you know than the enemy that you don't know. Maybe security wasn't as big a deal. No, that doesn't make any sense. That one, honestly, I, that one's a, a mystery to me. I think it's more expedient. To, I'm going to go with expediency. Uh, it's more expedient to have uh, locals as uh, your low-level staff and employees. See, I'm going to say, I, I'm agreeing with Brethren on most of these, which is kind of funny. I'm going to say, um, yeah, they'd rather keep an eye on the agents and have them in the building than doing whatever else they could be doing outside of the building. Uh, it's also not to be surprising. You guys are, are too poli-sci and I'm computer scientist. <laughs> <laughs> this is fair. I think, I I think I've heard that one before in, in a, like an example in a class. And it was probably in the same class that Brevin took a couple years before me. So. That's entirely possible. <laughs> um, uh, four, the U.S. Air Force jealously guards its command of a large fleet of intercontinental ballistic missiles that it regularly seeks to improve. But when the ICBM was first proposed, the Air Force was indifferent and even hostile to such missiles. Why? 
the Air Force saw it first as a threat to their relevancy, uh, but then when they assumed control of it, they realized that they weren't going to be irrelevant, and in fact, it uh, made them more important. Exact same answer. Yep. Same answer. Yeah, the threat. Uh, the U.S. government has sought to increase uh, proportions of the proportion of women working in shipyards. Private shipyards have shown larger such increases than government-owned shipyards. Why? Government's already a male-dominated. Yeah, I'm going to go. Uh, government's more male-dominated than uh, non-government, and therefore change is harder to make. Man, thinking about shipyards is like such like a not anything past the 2000s question. Um, uh, I'm going to say private shipyards uh, paid better. I'm going to say that as well, is that private shipyards paid better, and in the shipbuilding business, there's a relatively small amount of women who are pursuing that career, and so they're all going to go to where the pay is better. Hmm. I'll actually change my answer on that one to agree with you guys. That makes the most sense. Um, lost count. But when a new police chief is appointed in order to improve the quality of local law enforcement, the crime rate rarely goes down, but the number of traffic tickets issued often goes up. Why? Because uh, traffic tickets are the one thing that are highly visible, and they're also the only thing that he can actively fully control the number that are issued. Uh, I'm also going to say that it's a lot easier to do and harder, or not harder, but more of a waste of time to fight. So it's pretty much a guaranteed way to show your effectiveness. Um, and it's also very quantifiable. Okay, I'm going to give a different answer. I'm going to say that he increases enforcement of uh, across the board. Um, but traffic, t- traffic infractions are such a low level crime, if you can even call it that that people don't change their behavior versus criminals um, know that he's come into office, know that he's after them and they change their, their methods so as to continue to do their activities. And so the crime rate doesn't go down. I like that. Although I think the, the motivation of the criminals in this case wouldn't necessarily be directly correlated to uh, a new police chief, uh, but just more, they would notice that enforcement was cracking down. And therefore I, I don't think they would necessarily tie it in with the chief uh, proper. Hmm. Okay. Well, we'll see on that one. We will. We all disagree. Yeah. Um, And last one. When the Environmental Protection Agency was created, economists who had studied the matter argued almost unanimously that the most effective way to reduce pollution was to assess an effluent... Whoa. Was to assess an effluent charge on polluters. The EPA ignored this advice and instead sued the polluters in court. Why? Public flogging is more effective than uh, rules. See, Stephen, this is why you need to read the book Bureaucracy, because you assume that bureaucracies assume effective action. Uh, I'm going (laughs) to say regulatory capture. For the non-poli side, what does that mean? Explain that for the non-poli side people. Uh, Basically, just that when uh, agencies are founded to regulate things. They don't know how the things that they're regulating work, so they have to use the companies that uh, do the business to understand what they're doing, and then they basically, in some fashion, can write the regulations um, for themselves. Oh, see, I'm going to say I'm going to say efficiency as well. Well, 
Yeah, two parts of efficiency actually is that they're using the courts because it, they can create a unanimous rule very quickly with a ju ju judge ruling versus trying to create rules in the agency takes a lot more time. And they can also get a far larger payoff from a lawsuit than from fees. Hmm. Yep, that makes sense. All right. Well, tune in yeah. to the answers to to hear the answers. Um, so we've got neuroscience and public policy um, puzzles. Hey, it's it's always something exciting here on the Problem with Reading podcast. Uh, speaking of something exciting, Stephen, do you have a rant for us? Indeed. Uh, this rant originates from a TV show that a friend of mine uh, recommended called The Dragon Prince. And it is a uh, Y7 clearly, uh, you know, kind of aimed towards, uh, towards a, a younger audience. Uh, but that certainly doesn't keep it from being a good show. I mean, Avatar The Last Airbender remains one of my favorite um, shows of all time. And it's, you know, it's Y targeted towards younger kids, but it is delightful. So I figured I'd give it a shot. And I uh, started... Started watching it, watched the first season, watched the second season. I could not get over the fact that they, they have, a, it's a fantasy, um, obviously with the name Dragon Prince. Uh, and they have this really, honestly, kind of a fascinating magic system uh, where you have kind of generic elemental magic system, like kind of no, normal. And then you have quote unquote dark magic. And quote unquote dark magic is just not all that dark. And I, I kept wondering if they were going to explore its potential darkness or what have you more and more and honestly they never did and it, it, it finally i kind of got i got fed up with the show at one point because this uh so this dark magician is the the advisor to the king and the king gets word hey a famine's coming we don't have enough food hundreds of thousands of people are going to die and the magician's like okay look i can do this spell all i need is the heart of a magma titan and we can feed everyone and like it's painted as this like super dark evil thing and like finally like they they end up doing it they kill the titan they take its heart and they you know cast cast a spell and everyone has food and it's viewed as this like super depressing thing whereas i like uh, i don't think this kingdom is all vegetarians and so i'm sitting there thinking like wait wait a second so we're saying that saving hundreds of thousands of lives at the expense of what is effectively an animal is a bad thing and that sort of crap just kept echoing throughout the entire show where you have these like ostensibly really good things that happen at the cost of like a butterfly being killed and it's viewed as this like darkness that's seeping into the very fabric of reality someone's freaking paralyzed from the from the neck down and his sister i think kills a deer in order to say in order to save him and it's viewed as this super dark thing and it's one of the most frustrating dumb magic systems that started out kind of interesting and then just ended up being absolutely asinine and ham-fisted moralizing about apparently we can't kill animals to save people's lives even though we do that all the time it's called hunting hey so Stephen, don't uh, watch the dragon prince is what i'm saying hey steven a person's a person no matter how small but they're not a person. They're a freaking deer. <laughs> the person who is paralyzed is a person, and they matter, but apparently the deer matters more, and apparently we need to have Bambi running around. Kill, just kill Bambi and, and, and heal the guy, please. I mean, yeah, it, like, it's, it, it just seems like the thing. It's like, oh, well, why don't... I don't know. It's like, oh, well, let them eat cake. It, that just seems like the philosophy of the show. 
Stephen, I'll have you know that I'll have you know that just let them kill Bambi already is going to rain up there along with. I don't understand why everyone's freaking out about this coronavirus thing. Yeah, you know, the, the moment those words came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, that's not going to age well either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, Sam, do you have a better opinion? Um, Not really, actually. I forgot to prepare a rant. Um, TV shows. I've, I've been watching Tiger King this week. Finally, I finally sort of came to it. It's awesome. It's incredible, isn't it? I love every second of it. I'm it, finishing it tonight. It's amazing because every episode you think like they can't get more ridiculous than this. It can't get weirder. I don't in know. Every think, episode. Yeah. Actually, here's my rant. I'm angry at this show. I'm angry at this show for making me feel genuinely sad for and like actually rooting for a, a horrible polygamist um predatorial um animal abusing um zookeeper i i i i i feel sorry for joe and i'm i'm angry at the show for doing that to me That's, so i think i ever got to the point well no like there is something I mean, I don't think I ever got to the point where I super felt sorry for him, but there is something almost pitiable about the situation that it does, like, you do in a weird, twisted way sort of root for him. Even, I think I was I was pretty consistently rooting against him, especially after I found out, like, all the crap. But, like, there was part of me that, like, yeah, you do kind of start rooting, which is a very strange feeling. Yeah, I mean... Really, this is okay. This is a broader rant. It's all these Netflix reality shows that are coming out, which I've I've watched a regrettable number of them um, mm-hmm. over quarantine. They they play with your. I, I think that it's just a social experiment to see how like many of your emotions they can play with, and just get you to feel emotional about the saddest things. I mean, or not the saddest things, but like the most ridiculous circumstances. I mean, I mean, love is blind. That's a ridiculous show. It's like the knockoff Bachelor. And yet you 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 want these characters who are all pre-scripted, of course, to succeed. Um, and it's just, it's, it's pretty frustrating. I think that, that that's um, emblematic of the fact that reality television is probably a sin. I, no, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm 100% that it's a sin. Like, the, um, oh, like, the way that you watch the Tiger King and seeing like the uh, the documentary filmmaker who like appears to be a good guy at first, but then you realize that he's actually the villain the whole time. In Wait, I haven't everything. gotten there yet. Okay, you'll you'll well, I I mean like everyone's a villain, right? In yeah, there yeah. are no good guys in that show. Another, but like the monsters on reality television are monsters because the people who filmed them made them that way. Like the only real, uh, I wouldn't go that far. They they may paint them in one way or another, but like. It'd be pretty difficult for a filmmaker to make like Mother Teresa a villain. No, no, it's it's not about that. It's it's not saying that anyone can be a you know that filmmakers can make anyone a monster, but they're they are purposefully creating the conditions for people to be monsters, and that is that is the function of of their profession is to make instances to encourage people to be the worst to other people. I see, because that makes for a good show. There's exactly. always a moment in reality television, I've noticed this, where it's usually near the end, 
and where something it's the emotional climax of the show and one of the characters always turns around and says stop filming this isn't funny like, yep. like and it always i don't know i mean like i was i used to watch like my, my family and i would watch like you know the amazing race and survivor and all those classic reality shows and there's always a moment on even those shows where a character or character we're calling them characters where you know wow. a participant How, How, yeah <laughs> yeah we're a participant like has that moment um and we pass it off as entertainment but i think that that's maybe um i don't know is that expletive they signed the contract so there's that I mean, doesn't doesn't keep it from being expletive yeah especially if you go. have any idea of the inherent dignity of humans but uh, mm-hmm. speaking of the inherent dignity of humans, one that thoroughly violated mine and that of every uh, young girl from ages 9 to 17 is Frozen 2, the most garbage movie I have. Well, not the most garbage movie, but one of the most garbage movies I have ever seen that just absolutely trashes on a relatively promising and, uh, you know, decent franchise, but also just like a good first movie. Fr- Frozen was a good movie. Mm-hmm. Great. It, the great kinda, movie. Yeah, it was a great movie. It it had it, it, had, some, it, it had some some songs that that you know were absolute bops. Uh, you know they 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 just absolutely slapped. Um, and then this movie is just the is just a naked like corporate cash grab that is just probably a movie that is more insulting to its audience than one that I can think of. Um, and in mm-hmm. deliberate ways. Uh, so just a, like I could talk about this for a long time. We might have. I haven't seen it yet, so. We might have a movie themed thing. See, Sam hasn't seen it, so I'll just I'll keep a couple. I'll I'll keep my. I mean, quite frankly, I wouldn't be too worried about spoilers, Sam. Like, I, I yeah, mean, to be fair. okay. Uh, so so very short version. Uh, the the show is incredibly insulting to its audience's intelligence in a whole host of ways. The plot is patchy at best. The world building is, is 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 some of the worst fantasy like like planning magic system or 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 just like planning the environment and the territory and the peoples in a land it's it's one of the most sloppy i have i can i have ever seen in especially in a movie you know that had a production of what like probably a hundred million dollars or whatever um following up on like a an actual pop culture phenomenon yes Mm -hmm. it yeah it it turns its its characters into like these weird idiot facsimiles of themselves where they are just like little toys that are plunking about like with funny scenarios in which they just turn into characters who aren't even themselves. Like Anna is like a smart, intelligent character who like solves problems, risks things. And then in this one, the only role she has is to act along yeah. with uh, with her her boyfriend, Kristoff, to just be like to have comic misunderstandings that make no sense and make her just seem like an absolute like floozy. Like there's one thing where he's trying to propose to her throughout the whole movie. And, and that's like the motif. It's like, oh, he keeps trying to propose, but they keep having quirky misunderstandings. But every misunderstanding basically goes like, he's like, hey, so girl, like, I really like you. And like, do you remember like when we first met and we were like totally different people then, huh? It's like, oh, that's a cute moment calling back to your first meeting. And then Anna will be like, what? When we first met, when we were different people, you want to see different people? You're breaking up with me? Blah, 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 blah. And like, that's, that's, that's her character for the in- entire movie. And, and that's all she does. Um, and she, like she had moments like that in the first one, but they were they nice. were sparse, and they were and they were inter- yeah, and they were interspersed with like actual intelligence. Uh, and yes, there, and there is none of that uh, in this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the one other thing that I'll say, although I could say a whole lot more, but I don't want to spoil t- 
two. Okay, I'll say two things. Uh, no, one, I know I know most of the spoilers. Okay, okay. So, uh, so there are the four elemental spirits: fire, water, earth, air, and uh, then of course the fifth element that unites them all: ice. ice. Makes perfect sense. Yes, They're that's that's literally what they go with. It is. It is. Oh boy. Oh boy. And it's, that's the explanation. That's the ex. No, they don't like. I, they, just, I, they they just kind of gloss over why and how they just make it so. I think I thought is it ice or is it um Elsa? I thought Elsa is the fifth element, which I mean doesn't really make it any better. I mean that's even worse. That's that's a a a, a very weird movie with what is it Mira. What's her name? I don't remember. And uh, and uh, Bruce Willis. Uh, anyway, that's not that's neither here nor there. Either way, it's it's bad. Um, and finally, the songs they were really trying to go for another "Let It Go." Uh, they just couldn't get it. And while some of the songs are are okay, really most of it is just sort of like each song just seems like it was conceived in just this corporate boardroom trying to appeal to a certain demographics emotions like all right let's give olaf the puberty song then let's give anna the the song for people who have depression and then let's give uh elsa the song you know for for people who want to be, be be bold and who are exploring their identity blah 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 and like each song is just so like programmatically designed to do and address like one aspect of like you know puberty uh, like like people in in puberty uh and like that is all that the songs are there's there's nothing more to the songs there's nothing more interesting than that um except for one good element which is a rock opera with a lot of uh elk or whatever they have reindeer um yes that is the only good song in this movie uh yeah okay yeah no it was it was a terrible terrible movie i i I think brevin you brought up the whole like comic quote-unquote a misunderstanding between um anna and christoph that was where i gave up on the movie like i i went in to watch it i was i was with my my grandma and my brother yeah and i uh, oh sorry no no sorry sorry go ahead Uh, i was with my my grandma and my brother and went in thinking like ah sequels are generally not as good as the first but like the first was solid and even if it's like kind of a, a kind of a runner up to the first, like I, I enjoyed the first. I thought it was a great movie, good movie at least. Uh, but yeah, kind of once we got there, where we we took Anna, who was this really cool character and kind of a novel character. She she was flawed, but she was good. She had some really strong moments. Like on the whole, she actually felt like a rather mature character, especially by Disney standards. Um, and yeah, like once they kind of broke her down to that sort of caricature of what she had been. It was like, okay, yeah, you you guys don't know what you're doing, and uh, they they didn't, they and, sure and, didn't. And she was also a great character because she didn't have powers. She she was unique in that aspect. Like that was the cool thing is someone who is you know in a world of magic and people with swords who can't do that, but who still pushes through anyway. It's like, wow, that's that's really great. Like I went into I went into this movie hoping for a good movie. I liked the first one. I was open to a, a good thing for the second one, but then we it just got to points and we would. My my wife and I would pause it, look at each other. We're like, "Are they really doing this? I I can't believe that they're doing this this badly. Like, how do you screw this up?" So maybe so you're much. the same studio that released the Last Jedi and the Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I gotta run, boys. But uh, right. any any final words? No, except that it will probably be a couple weeks before I can record again. That's all. Yep. 
Sorry to hear that. I, know. Well, I guess that'll give me time to catch up to you guys on reading. <laughs> uh, yes, this this book is dense. Um, yes. Yeah. And, and I have nothing to say other. So uh, for everyone here at the Problem Podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And uh, we'll see you around on the right side. Like There's no way I'm gonna remember it for anything besides that. Just make up a different jingle of vaguely, <laughs> well, vaguely reminiscent of that. Yep. For a while, we were doing something like that where you, Brevin, you would say like ba, da, ba, 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 enlightenment. Yep. Yep. But uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, to to answer the, the unspoken question from the beginning of the podcast, um. Uh, hello and welcome to another episode of is from uh, you know what that's from Sam. Hello and welcome yeah to the uh, Remnant podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yep. Um, hello. No. Gre- it's greetings, dear listeners. This yeah, is another episode of the that, Remnant um, podcast. Also the Sub Beacon podcast. Oh, uh, okay. Also there. Uh, the um, and so for everyone here at that blah blah blah, that's from the Commentary Magazine podcast. Hmm. Uh, and then I feel like I pulled something from the National Review podcast, but I'm not remembering what I pulled. But those are the main two. Subbeacon okay. and, uh, and nice. the other guy. Oh, and then the bad transitions, of course, are, are from the Subbeacon. Yes. <laughs> so, no, no, no. Speaking of which, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I love it. Yeah, right, so boys. this episode was we talked about it was it was neuroscience, it was uh, public policy, and mm-hmm. then film. Yep, yep. We covered it why all. Do we, why do we have listeners? I don't know. I sincerely don't know at times, but hey, you know, like it, it's clearly something's working. Hell, eclectic yeah. cast. Yeah, uh, or maybe they're just all our friends who are filthy. Yeah, no, friends. no, no. That's that's probably it. That is the accurate. Yeah. <laughs>